Welcome to Agrofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and supporting sponsor of Agrofarm, the Bill Gatton Council Pharmacy. It's a sunny, for now, uh, Thursday, May 21st, 2020. Uh, this is the second time trying to record this on account of children interrupting me, uh, and hopefully it's the last time. Uh, since the last time I released a pod, the FDA has approved six new indications and uh, I think one new drug. So let's just get right into it. Uh, on um, May 15th, the FDA approved nivolumab and ipilimumab, Optivo and Yervoy, for the first-line treatment uh, of patients with non-small cell lung cancer who have whose tumor cells have more than uh, 1%, 1% or greater PD-L1 expression. Uh, and that's based on Checkmate 227, published back in 2019. Uh, two days before the approval, the, the drug company released a three-year overall survival press release that was favorable. Uh, briefly, Checkmate 227 randomized about 400 patients to one of three arms, Nevo plus uh, Ipi. And at Ipi dose, the, the Nevo dose was the standard uh, Nevo dose at the time, weight-based, three mg per kg every two weeks. But the ipilimumab dose was only one mg per kg Q6. Uh, the very first IPI dose approved was 3 mg per kg Q3 uh, times only 4 doses. So this is one-sixth of the dose um, for, the, for, those first, uh, for those first 12 weeks of ipilimumab. There was a nivolumab alarm, ohm, nivolumab alarm <laughs> alone arm and then a standard chemo arm. And all these patients had PD-L1 uh, of 1% or greater. Median OS was about 3 months improved in the Nevo plus IPI arm compared to chemo. Medium PFS actually numerically favored chemotherapy, and that's because the the capillary curves cross over. Patients progressed quicker initially on immunotherapy alone, um, but then um, did better in the long run when you look at those Kaplan-Meier curves. Now, the overall response rates were similar, 36 and 30%, but the three-year overall survival from our press release and from an abstract to be presented next weekend at ASCO uh, favored immunotherapy. Um, so 33% of folks were alive three years later if they got Nevo plus Ipi. Only 22% were alive three years later if they got chemo. Uh, and if you look further at who were the folks who were most likely to be alive three years later, it was the, the patients who had a response with Nevo and Ipi. So if you look only at those patients who had a response, which of course is cherry picking, um, so if you look at people who had a complete response or partial response, the three-year overall survival rate uh, with Nevo plus Ipi was 70% compared to about half that 39% in the folks who had chemo. So the overall response rate was about the same. You know, you're, if you're a patient and you're thinking, should I get uh, Nevo plus Ipi or just chemotherapy, which is not standard of care anymore, uh, your chance of, you know, your disease shrinking initially is the same in both. But the chance of having a really good response of that response being durable is much higher with immunotherapy. So, you know, what does this all mean? Because I already mentioned that Chemo by itself is not the state of care in this population. It'd be pembrolizumab plus chemo. Well, if we look at the you know the pivotal studies of Keynote 189, which was pembro plus chemo in a non-squamous population, Keynote 407, which is pembro plus chemo in a squamous cell population, and then Checkmate 227, the Nevo plus Ipi study that we just talked about. Um, you know, they're all looking at the same patients in regards to PDL1 expression. Um, Checkmate 227 was both histologies, both squamous and non squamous, whereas, uh, you know, Keynote 29 was just squamous, and Keynote 47 was, sorry, Keynote 407 was just squamous, and Keynote 29 was non squamous, mostly adeno. Uh, you can look at the toxicity rate, and you might expect maybe there's more serious toxicity in the long run with Nevo plus Ipi. That doesn't seem to be the case. Actually, the grade 3 and 4 toxicities with Nevo and Ipi were only 33%. 
which is about the same as the chemo arm in both uh, in both arms of Checkmate 227. The the Pembro plus chemo grade three four adverse events look a lot scarier scarier at seventy percent, but compared to chemo they're the same. So um, you know certainly adding epi to nivolumab for these patients doesn't seem to be undue risk as far as uh, toxicity. Uh, it's hard to make any comparisons of two and three year overall survival endpoints, but they seem to be comparable with regards to efficacy. Um, so, you know, what do you do when a patient comes to you or, or somebody comes to you and says, should I do Pembro plus chemo or just Nevo plus Ipi uh, for chemo? Well, I think back to that progression-free survival and that some patients are going to progress very early on just immunotherapy. Uh, we would need to identify who those folks are and probably folks with very aggressive disease, immunotherapy is not going to work right away. Um, so it's kind of hard for me to think that chemo is not going to have a role in aggressive disease like metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. So personally, I favor the Pembroke plus chemo, but that's just really an opinion, man. Um, it's hard to back that on data uh, truly until you had a, a head-to-head comparison. But, you know, Neva plus Ipi is not as scary from a toxicity standpoint as in the melanoma literature because of that lower dose of Ipi, it would appear. And what this does also add is credence to the fact that immunotherapy is a must-have if you want a durable response uh, in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, and again, chemo is going to work right away. So if somebody is very symptomatic from their disease, probably chemo plus Ipi makes better sense. If it's truly a 50-50 call to a patient and they have just a very low burden of disease and are not that symptomatic from their disease, nevo-ipi is a more reasonable option in that scenario, in my opinion. Uh, and if you got a patient whose who's mom or dad or brother or uncle or friend down the street had a bad experience with chemo and is just never going to take it, now nevo plus ipi is a great option up front for those folks. Uh, moving on, on uh, May 18th, the FDA approved atizolizumab, or T-centric, or T-centric. It's always hard when a drug ends, or a word ends in Q, and there's no U that follows it. A Q should follow a U, I think. Anyway, FDA approved atizolizumab um, for metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with high PDL1 expression. Now, that sounds familiar. We already have an approval like that for pembrolizumab. Uh, for tumor cells that express 50% PDL1 or greater. This approval is similar for atizolizumab, first line setting high PDL1, but their definition of PDL1 is a little bit different. It's greater than or equal to 50% PDL1 expression on tumor cells or greater than or equal to 10% PDL1 expression on the immune cells in the tumor sample. So that's, that's an important distinction between these two approvals. Same patient populations in general. First line, metastatic, non-small cell lung cancer, high PDL1, but how you define high PDL1 is different with atizolizumab versus pembrolizumab. The pivotal study here is in Power 110, which was presented at ESMO 2019. About 500 patients in total uh, with PDL1 expression, more than 1%, either on tumor cells um, or immune, uh, sorry, immune cells, uh, randomized to atizolizumab 200Q3 or standard chemo carbopem, if non-squamous, carbogem, if squamous. About 100 patients in, in each arm for the, the, the analysis we have. Uh, so the median OS is 20 months versus 13.1 months, very similar to the median OS difference between Pembro by itself and chemo by itself. Um, so this appears to be a, a reasonable option. I'm not sure it's going to supplant Pembro. The numbers look a little bit better for Pembro. Can't say that it is better, but everyone's comfortable with Pembro already. But let's say you've got someone... Uh, and you you know your lab does the test, and they're not a candidate for cytotoxic chemo, and you're really hoping that PDL1 is more than 50%, so you can give them Pembro by itself, and it's not. It's 40%, 25%. Well, maybe you could you do the, the different assay and find more than 10% uh, 
uh, immunotherapy uh, immune cells in the tumor sample expressing PDL1, then atezolizumab would be an option and is better than just chemo in that patient. Okay, we got through the lung cancer updates fast. I'm impressed. All right, uh, the next uh, approval we'll talk about is a new drug, and it's a fun one to say. Ripretinib uh, was approved on May 15th, um, and the brand name here is Kinlock, Q I N L O C K. Again with the Q with no U. Um, so if you're ever playing like Onco Farm Scrabble, you know, and you get that dreaded Q, Kinlock or Keenlock, that's a good one, right? Uh, so this approval is for the fourth-line treatment of GIST, gastrointestinal stromal tumor, in patients who have already uh, burned through imatinib, sunitinib, and regorafenib. And this is based on Invictus, which I think was a good movie about rugby back in the day, like 10 years ago. Only about 130 patients in this study. Um, they were randomized 2 to 1 to ripretinib or placebo, medium PFS, uh, and uh, was 6.3 months with ripretinib versus one month with uh, placebo, so a stark difference in, in uh, difference in PFS, as well as median OS was 15.1 months with, with ripretinib versus 6.6 months with uh, placebo. Now, that was not statistically significant based on their hierarchical testing strategy. The p-value was less than 0 0.05, but wasn't statistically significant because they spent quite a bit of their alpha testing PFS. Since it's a new drug, we'll talk a little bit more about this agent. Even though it's, you know, it's going to be a pretty niche drug, fourth line, uh, after, th after failing three tyrosine kinase inhibitors, but it's a pretty uh, widespread multi-kinase inhibitor. It inhibits kit, platelet-derived growth factor alpha, just like, you know, like a matnib does, um, as well as platelet-derived de platelet growth factor beta. Uh, TI2, which is not a kinase I was familiar with, but is involved in uh, angiopoietin, is a ligand. It's found in endothelial cells. Uh, uh, rip also emits VEGF-R2, as well as BRAF. And we can sort of see these kinase targets in our toxicity profile of ripretinib. So if we look at our warnings precautions from the label, uh, palmer plantar erythrodiesthesia, 21%, 1.2% uh, of patients actually had to stop the drug due to this hand-foot syndrome. A new cutaneous malignancies, both cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas and melanoma were also seen. Uh, that's likely due to the BRAF inhibition of this drug. That does require monitoring at baseline and periodically thereafter. Uh, hypertension occurred in 14%. That's a VEGF-mediated mechanism. Uh, cardiac dysfunction, uh, left ventricular ejection fraction decreased by 2.2%. So relatively, you know, not, not common, but does require either a MUGA or echocardiogram upfront and periodically thereafter to monitor for this. Uh, impaired wound healing, which maybe could be a VEGF or TI2 toxicity, and then embryo-fetal toxicity. Uh, so as far as the, the side effect profile, nothing new if you're well-versed in side effects of the different tyrosine kinases. Maybe there's not one that has that combination of warnings to worry about. Other toxicities uh, to think about uh, that we see with ripretinib, 52% of patients had alopecia, so half had some degree of hair loss. Uh, nausea, 39%, that's versus 12% in the placebo arm. Uh, this is always great when you see this combination. Constipation, 34%, diarrhea, 28%. Uh, and then myalgia, 32% versus 12% with placebo. Uh, and again, since there's so much that's going on, just a real brief on our ADME. There is an active metabolite of ribretinib that, um, that is as active as the parent compound. They're both metabolized by CYP3A4. Uh, one of those is a P-glycan protein inhibitor. Um, so we do have, uh, you know, the standard drug-drug interactions we see with tyrosine kinase inhibitors. All right. 
Just to wrap things up here, on May 14th, pomalidomide was approved for Kaposi sarcoma. Wow, boy. You don't see a lot of approvals for Kaposi sarcoma. I think Doxel was the last one that I remember, which may be the, the first one I ever noted in, in my career. Uh, and then we have our PARP inhibitor update of the week. This is like a, a, an annual, not an annual, a weekly thing now. PARP inhibitors and immune therapy. That's what the podcast should be called. Uh, May 15th, Rucaparib, Rubraca, great name for a PARP inhibitor, Rubraca. Uh, was approved for, and this drug's already out on the market, but it was approved for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer with um, deleterious BRCA mutations after an antiandrogen and after a taxane. This is an accelerated approval. Uh, so, of course, it's based on what? A study of 100 and just response rate? That's right. A study of 115 patients over um, objective response rate of 44%. And that's Triton 2, which is a single-arm study. Um, now, not to be outdone, on May 19th, Olaparib, Lymparza, was FDA-approved for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, sound familiar, with deleterious or suspected deleterious, by the way, deleterious means bad, um, uh, mutations or alterations in homologous recombination repair pathway. Now, these patients had to have progressed on enzalutamide or abiraterone is based on the profound study we talked about three weeks ago where, if you recall, patients got olaparib. They were put into one of two cohorts based on having one of 15 mutations in homologous uh, recombination repair deficiency. Uh, it's like BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM, and then 12 other ones compared to abiraterone or enzalutamide. And just as a reminder, 20% of those patients on abiraterone or enzalutamide uh, got put back on a drug they had previously failed, so really bad control arm there. Uh, and because of that bad control arm, it you know maybe it showed a difference where it would not have. Uh, but because there was an active comparator, this is a regular approval, not an accelerated approval. So when we look at these, now we've got uh, you know rucaparib and uh, olaparib approved for not exactly the same thing. The rucaparib is just for BRCA mutations, uh, whereas the olaparib is a little bit more of an open. Uh, approval for any deleterious or suspected deleterious. I guess you could argue lots of things are suspected deleterious uh, uh, homologous repair uh, mutations. Um, now, the, the Rucaparib approval, although it's an accelerated approval and it's not compared to anything else, those patients did already fail an antiandrogen and a taxane, which wasn't necessarily the case with Olaparib. Some of those folks in the Olaparib study had never seen a taxane. Uh, the Olaparib benefit, although it's for like, you know, 15 uh, mutations, most of those mutations were BRCA2 mutations. Therefore, where you see the benefit in subgroup analysis is solely in the BRCA2 population. So um, my guess is both of these, my guess, my gut says both these drugs work fairly similarly in this patient population, uh, but I would I would favor Olaparib if they had a BRCA2 mutation. Um, otherwise, you would play it by, you know, the individual differences in drugs based on toxicity, based on drug-drug interactions, uh, and the like, as we do as oncology pharmacists. Well, that was six approvals in 15 minutes. Uh, it's a good day's work, a good quarter hour's work, at least. Uh, thank you so much for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, uh, at PharmDeetNip, all the podcast on both Twitter and and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. Uh, feel free, keep sending me messages of, uh, of ideas for, for topics. I've got several great ones. Uh, one's already in the can and others to be recorded. Uh, but the pace of, of movement and um, new information is just 
uh, going forward, and we're going to have stuff uh, next weekend from ASCO, so we'll update that as, as we hear. I'm sure there'll be some interesting stuff coming out of ASCO. Uh, thanks for listening, and until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.